Hi, everyone, and welcome to Monday Morning 8 a.m., a podcast from Firms Consulting that goes out every Monday where we distill the insights from the noise. We make this available to our broader community, even though it's primarily produced for our insiders and slides members. If you are new to the podcast, you can go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo and put in your email address for all future insights that we produce. If you would like to listen to the podcast version of this, you can go to any podcast app and type in strategy skills. This newsletter is produced as a podcast within that channel. And finally, as many of you have requested, if you'd like previous episodes to the insights, you can go to amazon.com and search for strategy insights. The book is available that has all of the previous episodes available. As you're listening to the series, remember it's always about thinking how you will use the insights and training to make an impact in the world. What will you do? So let's switch into the first big theme we are seeing this week. It's entitled six reasons your 401k will lose 40% this year. Well, actually the theme has nothing to do with your 401k. I picked that title to explain the big concept we're seeing in news organizations around the world over the last few months. Major cable news networks, major business publications, major newspapers have seen a steep decline in traffic. From January to February, most of them have seen 20-30% drops. Wall Street Journal, Fox News, CNN, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal. And the question becomes, why did this happen? What is the insight our readers and listeners need to think about? Well, for one, as someone once said in the newspaper industry, if it bleeds, it leads. What that means is if it's bad news, it's going to get attention. What this means is that newspaper traffic, news traffic, cable news traffic was up over the last few years because there's been a tsunami of bad news being recycled, sometimes exaggerated, but recycled over the news feed. So what does this mean? Well, let's think about this for a second, right? A Netflix subscription costs anywhere from, I think, $7 to $15, I think, in some cases. Even if those numbers are not right, it's a pretty low number. A Financial Times subscription per a month sits somewhere between $45 and $65 a month. A Wall Street Journal subscription per month, assuming there's no special promotion, just a standard price, is going to cost you more than Netflix. A New York Times subscription is going to cost you more than Netflix, again, assuming no promotion. Now, the question becomes, why is it that news, which is usually dominated with bad news, costs more than TV shows and movies that generally make you feel better? So why is it we are willing to pay a premium for things that are bad news and we're not willing to pay a premium for things that make us feel better? Well, let's think about this for a second. We pay for bad news because we think that bad news is going to lead to some kind of loss for us, whether it's financial, whether it's asset, whether it's institutional, whether it's emotional, it's going to lead to some loss. So in effect, we're not paying for bad news. We see bad news as a lead indicator for some loss or some pain we're going to suffer. Now, what does this mean? This means that Whenever you are thinking about how to motivate someone, whenever you are thinking what's going to get their greatest attention, whenever you are getting them to be convinced to do something, one thing you have to consider is, do I convince them by showing them what they will lose? Or do I convince them by showing them what they will gain? And if they have room to lose something, 
it's clear that in most cases, not all cases, that people will pay a premium if you can allow them to avoid a loss. Now, there are several cases where this is not true. If someone's already incurred the loss and they can't incur more, and they know they cannot incur more, then it makes sense to show them how much better things can be. In other cases, of all those media companies I mentioned, one has not seen a drop in traffic for the United States month on month. And that's the Financial Times. And why is that? Well, the Financial Times has deliberately staked out a position in the middle ground. It said, we're not going to get involved in what's emotionally draining on the left of politics and what's emotionally draining on the right of politics. We're not going to get involved in that. We're going to report the news as it is. And what that means is the Financial Times tends to draw in people who are not really interested in the exaggerated versions of what's happening in politics. What that means is that when people see a change in news, when, it, when there's no longer bad news in the Financial Times feed, because the Financial Times was never hyping it up anyway, there's no drop in traffic. It's keeping the same people because it's staying the way it's always been. It's attracted people, in other words, who didn't want these huge emotional cycles in news. So when the emotional cycles disappeared, the audience stayed with them. So I picked that dramatic headline to show you that many people would click on it to read on it. But the deep insight here is that when you want to motivate people to do things, you have to decide whether you want to show them the loss they can incur or the great future life they can have many, many years down the line. The next big topic is around global trade issues, and that's a huge topic. Considering what's happening with China, considering what's happening in the United States, and what recently happened in the Suez Canal, and you know, hats off to the Dutch salvage company that was able to move the tanker along and get global trade flowing again, no pun intended. Global trade, it can be used as a force for good. It can be used to modify behavior. Now, I'm going to talk specifically about what's happening in commodities, but the lesson is not just commodities, right? You know, there was a time many, many years ago when um, Japan was considered to be such a major rising military, industrial and naval power, and especially after the defeat of the Russian Navy, that many Western powers thought the Japanese were eventually going to come west or at least go far east and arrive at the United States, which they eventually did. And the Americans in particular wanted to know how can they contain Japan as a naval power. And one thing they realized is that if you, an island nation, you need a navy and a navy is built on steel and the Japanese never really had steel. So what the Americans did is that they pulled back a special agreement they had. They pulled back that agreement in 1917 and imposed a steel embargo on Japan. And obviously Japan saw a steep decline in the amount of steel it could import which led to a significant reduction in its ability to plan, launch, and commission new naval ships. Now, China is in many ways, whether rightly or wrongly, it's not our place to judge, seen as someone, a nation that's going to challenge for the first time ever, really, in recorded memory, uh, Western domination. The question becomes, how do you modify Chinese behavior? Well, one is you cut them off from material they need. And one thing they need a lot of is iron ore to produce steel. China at the moment is highly dependent on Australia for its steel imports. Depending on the databases you read, it's anywhere from 40 to 60% of Chinese iron ore comes from Australia. It would be unusual, would be my guess, if uh, Chinese military planners, industrial leaders, and the government was not 
thinking of the strategic weakness they have by being dependent on one source for I know this has nothing to do with Australia they're wonderful people I love Australian rugby I love the Australian cricket team I would probably cheer for them first if New Zealand was not playing but this is about strategic dependence on one source and not having diversification. So what this means is that China is going to do everything in its power to diversify its iron ore supply. And a big focus of this is looking at the country of Guinea, where the Semando fields are. For many years, especially when I was a senior partner advising CEOs and CFOs and chief financial officers and chief operating officers in the resources sector, we always looked at Guinea as a source for iron ore. The thing is, Guinea is very difficult to develop because on the side of a mountain, you need to build something like a 500, 600 kilometer railroad to, to connect the coal mines in, sorry, to connect the mines in, the iron ore mines to a port. You have to build a port, you have to dredge the harbor. For many companies, the economics didn't make sense. But here is the deep insight. Oftentimes, when we do financial analysis, we make the assumption that return on investment for that development is the ultimate arbiter of success. So for example, we say the return on investment of this facility is going to be very low because the cost of building the railway line, the port, dredging the port and so on is going to be so high that the ROI just is not worthwhile. But one of the things you have to consider when you consider ROI is what is it you are calculating the ROI for? If you are calculating the ROI for just this port and development, it would probably be low. But if you calculate the ROI for the entire the entire steel sector for China and you factor in that any delay or any constriction of supply of iron ore will cause such a big hit to Chinese growth ambitions that they would rather bear this cost than the ROI makes sense. If you calculate the ROI for the entire Chinese economy growing when not constricting iron ore supply, then the ROI makes sense. So the insight here is two things. First one is when you're calculating your ROI, pick the right boundary for your ROI. If we just looked at the ROI for this one development, it wouldn't make sense. But if we consider the ROI for the entire steel sector, it made sense if we take into consideration what delays a constriction of supply of the raw material, the feedstock for steel would do. That's the first insight. The second insight is whenever you are trying to get investors into a deal, whenever you're convincing someone to work with you, you always have to think about what is their strategic risk. And you've got to ask yourself, how can you help them mitigate that strategic risk? For example, if you were a group of developers who wanted to develop Samando in Guinea, you could go to different funders around the world, or you can know strategically the Chinese are interested in diversifying supply and locking up security of supply. And you can say to them, you can go to them and say, hold on a second here. We know the costs are high. We know it's risky, but if you do this, we guarantee you supply. And that in the short term may cost you more. But in the long term, once we get the volumes up, it's going to cost you less. Those are two important insights when you're thinking through, thinking through how to calculate return on investment figures from any large project or any project for that matter, right? The other big thing we're seeing in the news today is this talk about how COVID-19 has changed, one, work patterns, and two, immigration patterns. One of the big trends of the world is people from Brazil, India, Bangladesh, Philippines, traveling to places like the Middle East, the UK, Canada, the United States to work. Many of them stay there, become permanent residents and become citizens. But what's happened is that with COVID-19, we've seen a bottoming out 
of certain parts of the economy, particularly low salary jobs. Now, countries have to get their economies kickstarted and growing again. And there's two ways to do that. One is you increase your productivity per citizen or you bring in more people through immigration so your GDP grows. Canada, and this is the theme for this insight, is that Canada has set an immigration target of 400,000 people in the next year. That means that they want to bring in 1% of the population to apply for permanent residence and eventually become citizens. That's a big number. Canada obviously has a track record of integrating people well. And they also have a points-based system whereby they are sure that the people they're inviting in have the wherewithal and means to earn a good salary, integrate into the society and be a net positive contributor. It's worked for Canada. They've got a different system. They seem quite happy with it. So, you know, well done to them. But what's the insight here? The insight is not about countries. Yeah? The insight is about whether it's a company or a family. Let's look at this. If you've got a country where the population is not declining, the population is more or less steady, but if you don't have enough new people coming in, the population ages. So what you have is over time, you get more old people and you get fewer young people. And if you've got more old people, you've got fewer young people, you've got fewer young people to take care of more old people, and you've got fewer young people who have to work much harder. We want to talk about companies, for example. And you see this often in families and companies. Imagine a company that never hired any new employees. So his headcount is 10,000 people. And in 20 years, the headcount is still 10,000 people, but everyone's 20 years older. The people who are 20 years older, naturally, some of them, when, they, when we started this calculation 20 years ago, will now be 40, so they're at their prime peak earning potential. Those who are in their 40s and 60s will now be 60 and 80, which means that they are not as productive. They can't work the hours. They don't have the stamina, flexibility. They don't have the agility. Their output is going to be, all other things being equal, lower than the younger people. Think of a family. Imagine a family whereby no babies are born into that family for 40 years. What is that family going to be like? Who cleans the yard? Who takes care of people? Forget about practical work. What about the joy of hearing a baby laugh? Have you ever heard a baby laugh? That may be one of the most beautiful sounds in the world. The point here is that you have to replenish not just the diversity of your workforce, but the age of your workforce. Today, there's a big focus on diversity, and I applaud people who are focusing on diversity. Please continue and do more on that. But at the same time, there also needs to be an equally big push to change the age profile of your workforce. There has to be this conveyor belt of bringing in younger people. You can't get away from it. And what I would hope is people listening to this and are pushing through diversity programs do not ignore the fact that secular long-term trends are driven by the ages of populations, not the diversity of the population. You can have the most diverse population in the world, but if they're aged, it doesn't matter. You're not going to be competitive. If you look at what's happening with China, it's the aging of the population, not the diversity of the population. The long-term health of the United States is driven by the fact that it's unusual amongst developed nations, wealthy nations, to have a relatively young workforce. I can tell you right now, if the United States had an older workforce, we would not be having a discussion about diversity. We'd be ringing alarm bells about the age of the workforce. The next big theme I want to talk about is entitled the Philadelphia 76ers, which is an NBA team, and the New Jersey Devils, which is an NHL hockey team, are not sports organizations. I know many people are going to say, but Michael, what are you talking about? That's an NBA team and that's an NHL team. 
Of course, there's sports organizations. This is building on the theme of previous Monday morning ATMs where I mentioned Tesla is not an electric car company. I mentioned Disney Plus is not a streaming service. And I got a lot of feedback about that. Good, positive feedback where people liked those examples. I recently had a discussion, a very nice discussion actually, with Scott O'Neill, fabulous guy who's the chief executive officer of Harris Blitzer Sports Entertainment. And he's also the chief executive officer of the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils. He spoke about many things, about his family, about his life, about his kids, a wide-ranging discussion about how he manages stress, how he makes decisions, how he programs himself to shut out the noise and focus on the most important things to make the right decisions. One of the things I was talking to him about is that he can look at his organization in a different way. Yes, it's a sports team, but the same way Starbucks is a third place away from home and office, the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils can be thought of in two ways. One, they are asset managers who manage one of the most precious assets in the world, which is the dreams of young children. Young children are deeply inspired by pro athletes. I mean, these are men and women who push themselves to the physical limit to do impossible things on the court. At the same time, they're really happy people. They're always smiling after that difficult, difficult game where they've been hammered from every single side. They're there willing to sign autographs and make a young kid feel happy. I mean, that's quite, these are quite amazing people, right? But they're not a sports team only. They are asset managers for the dreams of young children and older people as well. And another way to look at them is that they're not just a sports team. Scott O'Neill manages a roster of role models. Yes, they need to win games, but if they win games and they have such off-putting personalities and off-putting antics that they alienate children and fans, they're not going to be a successful franchise for long. They're not going to groom people from a young age to want to watch their games. And we're talking about different ways to think about them. And one way is that they're really asset managers for kids' dreams and they're a roster of role models. So the insight here is that as you think about your organization and yourself as well, don't just think of yourself that I am the chief operating officer of a bank or I am the senior vice president of strategy planning at the world's fourth largest utility. You've got to think about what is the unique dimension in which you compete. What business are you in? If you are not in a business and you're employed, you're also in a business because you have clients and the people who hire you and pay your salary. The same way... Scott O'Neill, fabulous guy, is always open to thinking about how to rethink his organization. We all need to be doing that. Finally, I want to end up today's episode on the final story, which is entitled Moral Duty. And this comes from an event in my past. For those of you who follow many programs we have, like uh, Partnership Memoir and Rebuilding a Boutique Consulting Firm or Rebuilding a Consulting Practice, you know that I made a big switch in my career. I changed offices when I was a up-and-coming associate. I was being promoted very rapidly, and I moved to another office. And I was in, in the energy sector when I moved. And I moved to the new office, and I attended a meeting with the energy partners and the energy consultants from that office. And I would attend this meeting assuming that um, I was going to be welcomed with open arms because their primary client, an energy company, was a client I had spent many years at. I basically, I built my entire career. I knew the chief executive officer. I knew the chief financial officer. I knew the chief operating officer. I had served as chief of staff to the CEO when he had just joined. The consulting firm had seconded me to be his chief of staff. The guy sees me everywhere. Even if he's in a busy meeting, he'll always wave at me from across the foyer. I had worked with them on their 
information technology strategy, business unit strategy, energy security of supply studies, organizational design studies, R&D studies, corporate strategy studies. I've done all of their strategy planning work. So even though I was an associate, I had, had a deep knowledge of this client. So when I joined the new office and attended this meeting, I was very happy because I thought, wow, I'm joining a new office. I have a deep track record at a client that is a major, I don't use like using the word account, but that's what it is, an account for this office. It's, it's an important client. It's a great privilege to serve them. And these are consultants and partners who clearly would want to know how I could work with them, right? So I was very happy. I remember going to this boardroom sitting at the table sitting on the right hand side at the far end away from where the presentation was being done i was a new member of the team there was about 12 people in that meeting there were three partners one senior partner two junior partners what you would call a principal and there was a mix of engagement managers and associates and what we now call expert specialists and i would assume because i i had done so much work with this client that my views would be taken into consideration and they were to some degree, but by and large, the majority of the discussion was the fact that that senior partner had a different point of view from me in terms of what this energy client should do. That partner believed that the energy client needed to get ahead of the climate change trend and start investing in carbon capture and going carbon neutral, that's one, and two, moving into new technologies. I was of the different viewpoint where I knew climate change was a big issue, but there's one thing to know a trend, it's another thing to time a trend. You've got to enter a trend at the right time, or if you enter too soon, you incur costs and you never get the return from it. So that's one thing. So I thought they should go down the climate change path, but they should do it slowly, maybe acquiring companies that were specialized in this. And two, they should not move into new technologies yet that were untried. They should buy in slowly, but they should keep their current operations as a cash cow to fund the transition. So we, we both presented, we both talked about it. You know, the firm has a right to decentral, so I can talk to, I can say what I think. No one's going to tell me to stop. But what normally happens is when you have a senior partner and two junior partners, everyone listens to them and follows their viewpoint because they don't want to upset this partner because they need to be on his, on his projects. They don't want to be seen as challenging a partner in a meeting. So I was the lone wolf saying, you shouldn't do this. The company does not have a strong enough balance sheet. If you go down this route, it's going to be, it's going to be a huge distraction. They can't manage the level of capital projects. The trend is real, but you've got to time the trend. And what you're doing is you're going all in in unproven technologies that are an extremely capital intensive. At the same time, you're offloading old and dirtier technology, but which are cash flow positive and you're going to create a cash trap for yourself and it's not going to look pretty. So we have this, this challenge right now. In this meeting, I made a, what I consider one of the deepest regrets of my life. I didn't feel that I agreed with the partners and I left the energy practice. For those of you who followed my career, you know that I went into the resources practice. This is the decision why I went into the resources practice. I felt that the advice they were giving the client, I didn't agree with it. I didn't want to be part of it. And I left. That was the regret, but there's a deeper regret here. I've obviously followed that client over many years. And it's in a little country. It's not in a big country. It's in a little country. And it's a big taxpayer in that little country. And, you know, securing energy supplies is a big deal in a little country. If you don't price fuel correctly, 
You can cause spiraling inflation. You can cause lines outside the gas stations. You can cause foreign direct investment to collapse. Over the last many, many years, I've watched that company follow this strategy and basically collapse into chaos. And as that company slowly collapsed into chaos, as warning signs were raised by credit agencies, by lenders from around the world, as each subsequent massive capital expansion project in a new technology went over budget, over timeline, was commissioned and didn't work, had to be abandoned in some cases, had more money had to be spent, as each of those things trickled through year by year by year by year, I watched the narrative of this country change from hope to despair, whereby today, because of the energy sector in so much turmoil, pretty much the country is a disaster. Now, what's my regret here? My regret here is that I had a moral duty to not say, because I couldn't convince the partners to change their mind, I was going to back out of it. I, in that regard, I have one of my, probably my biggest regret of my career is not forcing the partners to change their mind. I should have said, no, I disagree with it. I should have done everything I could to change their mind because I knew it was a bad decision. And you can imagine the impact on the country, the citizens, the well-being. Generations are going to be affected by this. Poverty has gone up. Foreign direct investment has collapsed. Diversification of the economy is a pipe dream. Children are not able to get the medicine they need because the government doesn't get its tax revenues to pay for that. So by not speaking up, it caused a tremendously burdensome, traumatic ripple effect across the country. Today, I believe I don't want to make that mistake again. Therefore, I now act on my moral duty. If I think I have a better way of solving a problem, a better way of developing a leader, a better way of helping people unleash their careers, it's my moral duty to do everything in my power to make sure that I get them to work with me versus working with someone else who may not care about them, may not take the time and effort to give them the best training, and worse, may give them something that's actually going to damage their career. Which is why I work so hard to put out podcasts, training programs, video programs, because I want as many people as possible to not experience what that client experienced. I feel if someone doesn't work with me, they're going to work with someone who may not just care. They may not care at all. They may just get the money, move on, and everyone suffers. What do you need to think about? What is your moral duty? Everything we do is driven by a moral duty. It is our job to make sure that clients know about what we're doing. Try it because we know it works. We know the results are there. Clients who work with us see a tremendous and dramatic change in their careers. I mean, huge changes in their careers. Over a few years, they go from being analysts all the way to SVPs, EVPs, chief operating officers, chief financial officers, but it's the impact they make on their economies, on their businesses, on their communities, and on their careers. And on that note, I wanna leave you with that thought. Think about what is your moral duty? How will you act on it? Because that's the most important task you have in your entire life. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. 
It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.